1: I'm all
2: right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good <laughs> question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Podi, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good
3: morning, Tom. How
2: you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right.
0: The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation.
7: This is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Hey, on behalf of Detroit, we want to present these buffs to our governor, Big Grinch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Grinch. We ain't even about to stretch, we got Big Grinch. You can find her in the press, under Big Grinch. Fresh in a new dress, yeah, that's Big Big Grinch. Grinch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Grinch. We ain't even about to stress, We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Mm-hmm. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Big Gretch and this bitch playing no role. Excuse all, all the cussing, that's just how I get my flow on. For real? If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretch said stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. Big Gretch ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we gonna take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. Big Gretch got them shook now. When it's all over, you invited to the cookout. When it's all over, you deserve to get took out. Big Gretch with the buffs on on the lookout. Uh, and she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on that pair of buffs with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit mission. throw so the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stress. We got big great. At all. You can find her in the press. Under big great. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's big great Throw the bust on her face. Cause that's big great We ain't even about to stretch We got big great. At all. You can find her in the press. Under big great. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's big great. Big stretch.
5: Welcome back, everybody, as we roll into hour two of our three-hour tour. Coming up in the uh, third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to turn the spotlight on uh, arts and entertainment, as we always do on Fridays leading into the weekend. Uh, We're going to have a quadruple threat. She is um, an actress, writer, director, and producer. And... um, Her name is uh, Erica Nicole Malone. That's coming up in about an hour. But uh, we're going to shift gears this hour and observe the fact that today is uh, Good Friday. And for most uh, Christians in the United States, they'll be celebrating Easter this Sunday. And so uh, uh, to observe Easter heading into this uh, important weekend uh, for Christians, the guest this hour is a historian and a best-selling author of six National Geographic books about biblical history. Um, Jean-Pierre Isboutz is a professor, uh, a doctoral professor at Fielding Graduate University in Santa Barbara, California, and has also produced a number of award-winning documentaries narrated by Charlton Heston, Leonard Nimoy, and Morgan Freeman. And uh, the book that we're going to talk about has uh, been reissued. It's uh, In the Footsteps of Jesus, a Chronicle of His Life and the Origins of Christianity. But we have a couple of minutes before we start our conversation with uh, Jean Pierre. Um, So I'm going to, as I like to do, I'm going to squeeze in a little local music. But this is a little different. Uh, George Winters, who. is uh, a good and longtime friend, and a uh, tremendous area musician, and, and some of his music appears regularly um, during the show, did a, uh, a, a CD of of Christian-inspired music, and uh, it's called I Believe. And we're going to um, take just a minute. I'm going to... Um, we're going to play that leading into my uh, interview with Jean-Pierre Isbautz. Um I'll just mention that joining uh, George in this uh, title track called I Believe is uh, Patrick Beanie on drums, Jeff Wallakangas on bass, um, Jim Barup uh, doing backup vocals, Jim Wilcox also on backup vocals, Jerry Cox on bass, Larry McRae on guitar, John Lowry, background vocals, and uh, a co-writer of one of the songs on the CD, plus uh, Bob Adato on saxophone, and, uh, of course, uh, George Winters, keyboards and lead vocals. Anyway, we're going to let uh, George take us uh, up to our interview with uh, Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts the author of in the footsteps of jesus for national geographic so uh stay tuned we got a lot of good stuff coming and uh it's uh, it's nice to have you along and happy easter to all the christians happy passover to all of our jewish friends <laughs>
3: Sometimes our daily lives don't go as planned Got to roll with it, enjoy the ride Keep them in your heart And things will go right And your life can be beautiful So true, so pure, so wonderful for oh, yeah, Jesus I believe in You We're blessed in so many ways We don't understand The Master's plan we cannot
1: conceive
3: Oh, it's You in my life I feel so right, knowing you're there, watching over me So true, so pure, so wonderful, yeah, Jesus I believe in you So many people, they don't know you I believe in You I believe in You I believe in You I believe in You you. you. Living in the now is what He wants us to do Worry about tomorrow or yesterday Keeping me in your heart Things will go right Knowing You're there watching over me So true, so pure, so wonderful Yeah, Jesus I believe I believe in you, I
1: believe I believe I believe,
5: And hey, welcome back everybody, this is the Tom Sumner program, my uh, guest this hour has spent 15 years researching the historical Jesus, emphatically looking for sources not deeply investigated by his peers. He is uh, a humanities professor and author of numerous National Geographic books on the subject, including the one we're going to talk about today, In the Footsteps of Jesus. and uh, he joins me by phone. His name is uh, Dr. Jean-Pierre Isboutz. Jean-Pierre, welcome to the show. Tom, um, thanks for having me. Um, how did you decide to, to chronicle the life of, of Christ and, and research the origins of Christianity?
4: Well, that's a good question, Tom. You know, we live in a in an age of specialists, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, especially because I'm very active, of course, in academy and, uh, and uh, scholarship. You know, we, we tend to think that everybody should stick to his trade. I'm sort of a, a person who likes to combine things, who likes to look at things from a multidisciplinary perspective. And I'm very blessed in that regard because I and, and I have degrees in in musicology, in uh, history, and in archaeology. And, and that's what I wanted to bring to the story of Jesus. Uh, the, the character uh, of the historical Jesus is,
5: is someone who's fascinated me from, from, from childhood. Jean-Pierre, and, um, i, I got to back I, you up for a minute. What were the degrees?
4: Oh, I, I studied um, at, in graduate school. I studied uh, history, uh, art history archaeology, and musicology, uh, because I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to do. (laughs) I I was going to say, couldn't
5: you decide on a major? (laughs) No, I I just,
4: uh, you know, I I did my thesis on 19th century uh, music of the Balakira Circle, and then I did a thesis on American 19th century architecture, and uh, I did work on, on Renaissance art, and I, you know, my professors were sort of rolling their eyes. But I just uh, I thought it was also so fascinating. Uh, but then I I really got really interested in in biblical archaeology and history, and this is because you know I went to university in, in the 70s when when biblical archaeology was really just emerging uh, from, of course, the havoc of Of World War II. This was also a time when uh, Israel, the Six-Day War, when Israel conquered the uh, old city of Jerusalem, and I'm not going to go into the political aspects of that, but in any case, it did allow Israeli archaeologists to start excavating um, the old city, and and specifically, of course, the Haram al-Sharif, as the Arabs call it, the Temple Mount. Uh, where they were able to excavate parts of that great, great sanctuary, the Second Temple, which has told us, uh, has really shown us so much more. Of course, those are the famous things, but there are lots of other discoveries that don't necessarily make the headlines that are incredibly interesting and that really in- informed my book, because I really wanted to, to give a holistic view of Jesus, not just the Jesus of faith, not just the Jesus of history, not just the Jesus as, as the revealed in Jewish writings or in Roman writings. I wanted to bring all of that together and create a three-dimensional portrait of a man of flesh and blood, someone that we could get close to, that we could really become uh, far, far more closer than, than ever before. And Uh, You know, I give lots of lectures on the topic, and and people often ask me, do you think there is a a difference between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history? And my answer is always, well, of course there are differences, but they're not essential. The essential parameters of Jesus' incredible ministry are supported by a whole host of scientific evidence. And that's what I wanted to bring to this book and in a way that is accessible, not just to specialists, but to every reader, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Christian, whether you're agnostic, just want to know more about the history. That, that was the goal when I sat down to write this book, and, and I'm so grateful to National Geographic that they believed in the project and that they supported it with a wonderful team, and the result is this, uh, is this beautiful book.
5: More about the life of Jesus and the origins of Christianity with biblical scholar Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts is straight ahead.
3: Everybody's doing a brand new dance now.
0: Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
7: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
5: More about the life of Jesus and the origins of Christianity with Biblical scholar Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts is straight ahead. How much evidence is there for the existence and about the life of Christ outside of the Bible? And I'm talking about archaeological finds, you know, actual physical uh, Evidence, historical records, etc.
4: Well, that's a good question, and of course uh, we have to understand that um, this was the first century. You know, people always say, "Well, you know, exactly that. You know, uh, there's no evidence for Jesus." I said, "Well, no, he didn't have an Instagram account. Uh, there were no Polaroids of the apostles." But I think we so often bring a, 20th, a 21st century mind to an ancient problem. I think when you look at the Roman sources, we have a detailed attestation of Jesus in uh, a book written by a Jewish historian uh, working in Rome, Josephus. He describes, um, the he has a, a, a long paragraph about Jesus and the facts that he notes uh, are completely consonant with the Gospels. Yes, there are interpolations that were added by medieval monks who, who you know, uh, copied the work from Roman times and, and were able to preserve it for modern times, and in the process they sort of try to embellish the paragraph, but it's, it's fairly easy linguistically to ferret out the original text. That's one thing. Uh, the Roman historians, Tacitus, uh, Suetonius refer to, to the Christ, uh, Christus, as they call him. Of course, they no longer understand that Christ is, um, is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. And when we say Jesus Christ, what we actually mean is Jesus the Messiah. Christos, in Greek, is the translation of the Jewish Mashiach, the Messiah. But uh, So there is really a lot of uh, uh, documentary attestation of Jesus outside of the Christian orbit. And of course then then there's the archaeological evidence. Uh, You know for example that uh, from a very early age on, maybe as early as the second century, some people believe the late first century, the house in Capernaum, which was sort of the headquarters, the base of the Jesus movement, if you call it that, uh, which was the house of the mother-in-law of Peter, Simon Peter, Um, very early on, archaeologists have been able to identify uh, a shrine, which later became a Byzantine church, which later became a Christian church, (laughs) tracing all the way back, uh, testing to the fact that what the Gospels say, that Jesus launched his ministry in Capernaum, is really shown by the evidence uh, of these archaeological digs, and and then of course there's a whole, whole large amount of of uh, what we can, what we call um, circumstantial evidence. You know, the uh, discovery of a synagogue in Magdala, which is the most exciting thing that happened in the last fifteen years in biblical archaeology. Uh, why is that exciting? Well, uh, for a long time we all thought that there were no synagogues. In Galilee during the time of Jesus. Why not? Well, there was the temple. You know, for the three main festivals, uh, you went down to the temple. That's what you did. You packed up the kids and you went down to Jerusalem and you celebrated in the temple. Uh, so, why would you need a synagogue, a purpose built synagogue on Shabbat? You would gather at the village well or, you know, in a home of an elder and that's where you celebrated Shabbat. But you didn't need a dedicated building for that. Well, that whole, that whole theory, which was pretty much in place for much of the 20th century, was completely upstaged when a wonderful Israeli archaeologist discovered this synagogue in Magdala, the, the town of Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala, and uh, a coin uh, embedded in the floor of the synagogue shows that it was built or at least it was in existence as early as 27 AD, the time of Jesus. So all of a sudden, our entire, the whole house of ideas about faith and religion in Galilee in the time of Jesus, education, because synagogues typically had a little school for boys to learn Hebrew scripture, all that came crushing down. And now we're grappling with the fact that, uh, gee, there were synagogues in the time of Jesus in Galilee. And and so when, when, when Luke and, and Mark both state that Jesus launched his ministry in the synagogue, and he may actually be correct. So, so that's why all of these different disciplines work together. Not always, but many times they work together. And, and that's where I get very, very excited, Tom. When, when science intersects with the tradition, with the biblical oral transmission. That's where that's where I get very
5: excited. Well, and it's it's interesting, too, and there's so much to unpack here, and I don't know if we'll get it all done in the time that, that we have allotted. Obviously, you've written many, many books on the subject, Jean-Pierre. But you said something that, that made my ears perk up a little bit when you said linguistically, and I wondered how many languages had to be... You know, translated and deciphered to piece together bits of information from texts other than the Bible. Not that the Bible doesn't have a lot of interpreting right. to do, depending on which versions you have.
4: Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question, and, and that's a that's a discipline called biblical exegesis. What it means is that um, people study the text and trying to discern the underlying oral tradition. All of the Bible, whether we talk about Hebrew scripture, which Christians call the Old Testament, I prefer the word Hebrew scripture, as well as the New Testament, the Gospels and so forth, are based on oral tradition. It's important that we remember that. Of course, tradition tells us that the laws of Moses, the Pentateuch or the Torah, as the Jews call them, the Jewish law, was handed down by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, and and that's that's a woman tradition, and I think it has very important meaning, but historically that that segment of the Bible was transmitted through multiple oral strands. And uh, in the 7th century, starting with uh, the kingdom of Josiah, uh, Josiah is the one who really said, let's Let's start to document these tra- these strands, these and so it's it, it's thanks to the scribes of the seventh century, all the way through the exile and after the exile, that that these um, very diligent and expert people try to weave these different oral transmissions, uh, stories told around the campfire from generation to generation, were put together in. In a cohesive story, and it's a brilliantly done. And if you read the text and you're not aware of it, you think it's all one single story, but actually, it is a, an excellent and really brilliant uh, weaving together of, of different oral transmissions, each of which originated at a particular point in time and carried its unique cultural context with it. And the same is true uh, for the Gospels. And let, let me give you one example, of, if I may. Um, there are obviously differences between the four gospels. And the reason is that uh, the evangelists, as brilliant as they were, were not eyewitnesses. They were not physically part of the movement. I know some of the church traditions say that, and I'm very respectful of church tradition. I'm an observant, practicing Christian myself. But as a historian, well, we have to acknowledge that, that the Gospels were written outside of Roman Palestine by scribes who typically were commissioned to do that by the local Christian community. In the case of Mark, Luke, and Matthew, these were Jewish Christian communities because they refer to Passover, they refer to uh, other festivals and customs, and they assume that their audience understands what they're talking about. Because their thrust is that Jesus has been the sign, the Mashiach, and they don't have to explain what that is. The Gospel of John is written for a Gentile audience. That's why John has to explain certain things. He has to explain Passover, for example. So there, these these documents emerged in different places in the Roman Empire for very different audiences. You know, to to write a book took time. It took money. So typically these Authors were commissioned to do that. And what is so amazing to me is that despite of that, without the internet, without newspapers, without CNN or Fox News, the four Gospels are so similar. I mean, you have to see a divine hand in there. Yes, there are differences, but I'd rather be focused on what they have in common. Sure. And so there are so many stories that they have in common. And so that's that's the long answer to to your question about the textual analysis. I think the fact that there's so much agreement across the Gospels, despite all these years of oral transmission, that uh, that we have these gospels, and they there are such rich documents. Yeah, a lot of people don't
5: a lot of people don't realize that those gospels were written many years after Christ's death. And yeah. and and from memory, or as you point out, from oral tradition, the way the stories have been told for a generation.
4: That's absolutely right. And in fact, John, the evangelist, John, who writes at the very end of the first century, these, these dates are not cast in stone, but, but we believe that Mark, Mark is the oldest, he writes in 66, between 66 and 70, I believe because of the outbreak of the Jewish war, we could talk a little bit about that. Uh, Then uh, Luke and Matthew write about uh, 10, 15, 20 years later, clearly with knowledge of Mark's gospel, because about two thirds of Mark's gospel appears in that of Matthew and Luke, even though they have also other sources that Mark does not have access to. We call that Q or Quelle the German word for source. It's a putative document. It, doesn't, it hasn't survived, but we can reconstruct it by uh, again, analyzing the text of Luke and Matthew. And then you have John, and John actually uh, identifies the, the, the oral testimony, the eyewitness account that, on which most of his gospel is, is based. And, and, and even though he writes at the very end of the first century, uh, apparently, he also has other sources that were not available to the other three evangelists, such as, for example, the story of the wedding in Cana, uh, which do not appear in the other Gospels. So it's a fasc- that in itself is a fascinating subject. I, I, I certainly describe it in the book. It's part of the puzzle, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story.
5: You know, uh... This weekend, uh, Christians will be um, remembering the the crucifixion of Jesus and and his resurrection on Easter Sunday, um, at least the way we uh, um, celebrate it in the United States. And my my question is: This is the the whole story has been called the, the greatest story ever told but are there um, definitive records of Christ's crucifixion, arrest records sentencing records, any kind of historical documents that the um, that the Romans might have kept that verifies that an event took place that's a, that's a great question, and here I, I got to talk a little bit about the the,
4: the jurisprudence at, at the time. Um, you know, the Romans were uh, were very good about applying their law. They had a very highly developed law. In fact, much of that Roman law would be adopted uh, by Europe in the 17th and 18th century, and ultimately would filter in into our our legislation. So it's it's um, it's a it's a very good uh, set of laws the the problem was that jesus was not a roman he's not a roman citizen right we forget that he was not a roman citizen he was a colonial subject basically a stateless person uh from the perspective of the uh, roman authorities so when you see is that when, when paul is arrested according to the book of acts of the apostles uh, the first thing he does is he loudly says, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. stop, 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 I'm a citizen, so I'm not going to be dragged in front of a kangaroo court in Jerusalem or some other place in Caesarea. I insist on a proper Roman trial under the use civile, the civil law, and, uh, and he does, and, and the Romans have no choice but to uh, honor that. He's put on a ship, and of course he's shipwrecked, and ultimately he makes his way to Rome, the trial never took place, but in any case, that's what a citizen could do. Jesus didn't have those rights. He only uh, could appeal to a very flimsy law that applied to foreigners like him, which was the use gentium, the law of foreigners. And basically, it was really not a law at all. It gave the local magistrate, whoever that was, a governor or a prefect, full latitude to do what he wanted to do. And there was no need for records to be kept because "Ah, these colonials, you know, they're just rabble. Who needs to document that? And so we see, for example, that uh, Mark, who again, is the, the oldest gospel, closest to the historical material, the oral transmissions, I think, describes it very well. This is not a trial. This is a brief hearing. Pilate is having dinner or he's doing something uh, in the evening and all of a sudden uh, some of his uh, guards bring in this, this this man and he says uh, wait, what, what's the charge? Well, political sedition. He proclaimed himself king of the Jews. And Pilate says, well, what do you have to say about it? And Jesus is largely silent. He says, okay, end the story. There's only one punishment that that should be meted out for anyone who was contemplating political revolution in the Roman Empire and by default that was crucifixion same with Spartacus and his followers they were crucified along the Via Appia and same with Jesus there was not even a, 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 a debate it was a foregone conclusion and so that's why we don't have records per se uh, of that time. But we do have Josephus, that Jewish historian, who wrote in Rome, so, you know, his uh, he was funded by the House of Vespasian, the Roman Emperor, so he couldn't say anything nasty about Romans, <laughs> or he would be, uh, he would get into trouble, you know, politically correct, uh, first century style, uh, but still he has the courage to say in his book that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, the official Roman governor of the time. So, to me, that is astounding evidence, uh, both from the Gospels as well as from independent, if you will, Roman documents, that this was a historical event, that this was an historical occurrence. And, uh, of course, then we have Suetonius and we have Tacitus and all the other historians of the first century We also confirm that. We confirm the existence of Christus, as they call it, which is the Latin version of Christos, which is, of course, our word Christ. Now, that actually means, Christos means the Anointed One, which uh, is the translation of the word Messiah, or Messiah. So, when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, we actually say Jesus the Messiah, that's, that's the meaning of the word Jesus Christ. So anyway, another long
5: answer to your question. But those are the uh,
4: documentation we have of the crucifixion.
5: More about the life of Jesus and the origins of Christianity with biblical scholar Dr. Jean-Pierre Isboutz is straight up.
1: <laughs>
2: pretty in the sky also on the faces of people going by I see friends shaking hands saying how do you do they're really saying I love you I hear babies cry Watch them grow They'll learn much more Than I'll ever know And I think to myself What a wonderful world And I think to myself What a wonderful
4: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
5: More about the life of Jesus and the origins of Christianity with biblical scholar Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts is straight ahead. The arrest itself, um, you suggest, was uh, actually um, brought about by his protest in the temple. Uh, when he called the high mm-hmm. priest uh, Caiaphas and the chief priests a den of thieves that's according to uh, to mark um, when you look back at those events um, from the 21st century and you see different accounts of the same events are you are you able to see through like the Political correctness of uh, Jehifus?
4: Well, th- this is a great question. And uh, uh, it's interesting that uh, all of the evangelists base their passion story on Mark. Uh, when you look at the other stories of Jesus and his ministry, there's a wide variety of, of all transmission, and so there are some differences. But when you look at the passion, the passion is entirely based on Mark's version. And we believe that Mark himself based that on a possibly a, a document that's referred to as the cross gospel. That's just a name. You know, we don't know. It, we, we no longer have it, but both but Luke, Matthew and John all based their passion story on Mark Bay and balance ship. John creates these beautiful monologues around it, but it's all goes back to Mark. And, this is what I try to do in, in the book, in the footsteps. What I try to do is reconstruct those events hour by hour. What happened? Why did it happen that way? Uh, where did it take place? How did you get from A to B and B to C? And, and uh, my conclusions are that Jesus created this little riot in the forecourt of the temple you know, when he chased the money changes out of the temple, because uh, this was unprecedented that lambs were going to be offered for sale, to be sacrificed at Passover, in the temple itself that had never been done before. And, and I, I rely on some uh, other authors who have also studied this. Up to this point, the sale of sacrificial lambs for sacrifice at Passover took place on the Mount of Olives. A you know, lot, lot of space, a lot of space. You walk around, you pick your lamb, you pay for it with any currency that you happen to have. And you took that animal all the way down from the Mount of Olives through the Valley of Pedron, up the hill, through the throngs, the crowds of Passover, into the temple. Well, you can imagine, by the time that poor animal got into the temple, it was beaten up. And the priests would say, sorry, it's not unblemished. Off you go. You can't use it. Well, obviously, these people were upset. So what Caiaphas did, he said, look, why don't we bring the sale of these lands inside the temple? First of all, we can decree, we can certify that these lands are unblemished and fit for Passover. Second of all, you don't have to take them all through kingdom come. You can just take them from the forecourt directly into uh, the inner court of the altar where the land would be. It's a brilliant idea. There's one little one little little detail here. You could not use Roman currency in the temple. Why not? Because Roman currency had the image of the emperor. and any images of living people were not allowed in Judaism, certainly not in the temple itself. So you had to take your Roman currency, and change it, or Greek currency for that matter, and change it into the only currency allowed in the temple walls, which is the Tyrian shekel. So that's why there are money changers. So it all makes perfect sense. The problem is that Jesus wasn't aware of that. So here he comes, right? And in my book, I, I describe that he planned to give a, a sermon uh, just like Jeremiah had done, the prophet Jeremiah, who was a great influence on his ministry. And he's all prepped to go, the apostles are with him, and he goes into the forecourt, and he's getting ready to, you know, he's going to stand there, and he's going to give this, this beautiful, beautiful speech that will rally people around the kingdom of God. And what? The place is like a bazaar, like a kashba, right? Screaming merchants, uh, throwing up prices and money changers, throwing their currency rates. It's a zoo. And that's when he gets upset. And he starts to say, you know, you... You have made this uh, a den of thieves. And, and this is so interesting. And I, I don't think any other scholar, and I have the deepest respect for my peers, but I don't think any other scholar has ever related uh, the ministry of Jesus to something that happened in 27, 28 AD, which is when Pilate and Caiaphas were in collusion to steal money from the treasury of the temple. Josephus reports that these are our only source. Caiaphas and Pilate were in collusion to steal money from the temple in order to build, that was their excuse, an aqueduct. Never happened. And so you can imagine when Jesus just 18 months later comes into the temple and throws out to Caiaphas, you've made this a den of thieves he, that is immediately uh, interpreted as another accusation for what they did just 18 months earlier with the aqueduct affair. And that's why the warrant for his arrest went out, and that's why he was ultimately arrested, and that's why Caiaphas has this animus against Jesus. Uh, And he, he wants to see him indicted and crucified, and that's why the indictment takes place in his own home, which is completely illegal, because all hearings of the Sanhedrin have to take place with a full quorum in the temple. He does it in secret, he does it in his own home, and when he obviously lacks the quorum to condemn Jesus to death, he hands him over to the Romans and he says, here's a political rebel, knowing full well that that would be instant execution. Anyway, that's a long answer to your
5: question, but that's how these <laughs> things evolve. about. It. I, I like your long answers, Jean-Pierre. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, we're running out of time, and I feel like we've we've just barely scratched the surface and certainly not dug in as deep as, as you have over the last 15 years. Um, but I do always want to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Now, obviously, the book I mentioned, In the Footsteps of Jesus, A Chronicle of His Life, And the Origins of Christianity, the second edition uh, is out. And um, that's from National Geographic. And you've done many books for National Geographic. But so people might find out a little bit more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yes, I have a website.
4: It's uh, jpisbouts.org, where you can find lots more about um, my books and In the Footsteps in particular. You can also go to a wonderful social media platform that I use a lot. It's called Vimeo, Vimeo, V.I.N.E.O. very simple. And if you go there, just uh, enter uh, In the Footsteps of Jesus you will go straight to a series of video podcasts that I've done, uh, particularly for Easter, since so many uh, people are not able to celebrate Easter in church. Uh, So i made a a series of podcasts with lots of beautiful images and pictures uh, based on the book, and in there you will also find uh, links to my website and and other sources.
5: Well, thanks so much for spending this time with uh, us, Jean-Pierre, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Tom, for
4: having me. It's been
5: a pleasure. Take care. That was uh, Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbautz. He is the uh, author of In the Footsteps of Jesus, a Chronicle of His Life and the Origins of Christianity from National Geographic, now in its second edition. But he's uh, written several um, books for National Geographic on uh, um the Bible and, and Christianity so uh, be sure and uh, check him out at uh, jpisbouts.org and with that we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight up into-
10: Bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better. <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run, but half the dots were busy overseas with World War I. Today, we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus, well, then stay six feet away. Super damn Important that we practice isolation. Cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus.
5: Hi, I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.